We're in the middle of a journey together as a church through basic Christianity. So if you're joining us for the first time today, um, I hope that you can catch up, kind of jump into this. We're learning about what our faith is based on, why it's so important uh, to understand who Jesus is, but why does he matter to you and what does his work have to do with your life? Uh, so if you don't have a copy of this book, there is one for you out in the foyer. You don't have to sign it out or anything. You can just pick one up, uh, take it. This week we'll be reading chapter 5. And, uh, and th this, this takes what we're speaking about in church to the next level. So if you'd say, I, I like this stuff. I'd like to learn more about what Christianity really means and how the doctrines about Jesus and, and you and I as human beings, how all that connects uh, this book is a great tool uh, to dive deeper, so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. If you want to turn in the Bible this morning to Romans chapter 1, uh, we'll spend most of our time today looking at Romans 1, 2, and 3, because we're looking, the last few weeks we've spoken a lot about why Jesus is special, why he is God in the flesh, why we trust in him, why we believe in him. Last week we talked all about his resurrection and how the power to defeat death was, that's, the, that's what we needed the most. And Jesus came and brought that to us. And we can follow him, not just in our lifestyle, but we can also follow him into eternity. Um, so, that's great. But when you start to look at the Bible, you realize that not everything in the Bible is cheerful. In fact, there's a lot of dark, dismal, depressing, horrible things recorded in the Bible, and it really starts on about page three that things go wrong. And, and a lot of times when we look at our lives going wrong, we say, well, what happened? <laughs> Why is the world so different than what it feels like it should be? I don't know if you have this same sense that I do, but when, and maybe it has to do with the more that you, the longer you live and the more you understand history, the more you realize that people are just making the same mistakes, mistakes, over and over and over again. We might say the same wrong choices over and over and over again. So you see this on a very personal level uh, when you yourself look in the mirror and think, why did I just do that? I, I knew better. I shouldn't have said those words or had that bad attitude or engaged in that behavior again. Why do I keep falling for the same trap over and over again? And then you could zoom all the way up to sort of the global geopolitical level. And you can say, wait a minute, aren't we literally just replaying the same broken chapters of history over and over and over again with just different leaders and countries, sometimes it's the same ones, that are happening over and over. You say, well, why is the world so broken and why don't we ever learn the lesson? Well, today we'll discover why. And we'll understand how the world went from an amazing and wonderful paradise that God made at the very beginning to what we have today. So we go all the way back to the beginning. At the very end of Genesis 1, we read this. So God had finished creating the world. He looks at everything he made, and he saw that it was very good. So you might have had this experience. You go out in nature, and you just, wow, you see the flowers, you see the sky, the, the trees. Right now, I'm thinking palm trees, not snowy trees, you know, just because it's kind of cope with the weather out there, but the, uh, you think about all the beauty around us, right? And then you look up to the sky, you see the stars, you go, wow, this is amazing. 
This is so majestic. You can even look in your own body and think about how complex and intricate and amazing all the pieces of your body are. You say, God, this is very good what you've made. Well, that's what God thought too. But then something happened between Genesis 1, 31, and right now that is not very good. In fact, you could look around the world, and although you can still see the majesty and joy that God made, I think in our minds we, we sort of see that as almost this ideal that we wish represented reality, but then somehow we have to step back into our lives, which don't feel like they're defined by good. In fact, Romans chapter 1 summarizes the human condition really well. Um, look at this in verse 29. It says, Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Does that sound very good to you? Something's broken in the very good creation of God. Something or someone like me and you. Everything else is still doing what it's supposed to do. We're not. So we look at this and we say, how in the world did, the, how, how did, how did what God made get so polluted as to this being a description of the life we're living? We were supposed to be living as representations of God on earth, made in his image to be his children. And yet somehow things have gone horribly off track. Romans 1.28, which is the verse just above that terrible description, tells us why things got off track. So it says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Almost imagine Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, you know, just with all of this promise and potential around them. You just think about the moment that they had. They had their, their needs were provided. Everything was productive and joyful. Their relationship was right. There wasn't any sin or hate or selfishness to kind of muck everything up. There, there was this whole beautiful planet to work with, all sorts of amazing potential for them to advance from that point forward. But instead of saying, God, thank you for that, and now we want to acknowledge you as our God and follow you, when they took that forbidden fruit, in essence, they were saying, we want to know what God knows and do what God would do. We want to be in charge of our own lives and destinies instead of following God. When they did that, they set all of us on a course uh, towards sin. So doing a little bit of research, and uh, you know, Ukraine is obviously in the news right now, about the Chernobyl disaster. I looked into this before, and I don't know, watched a couple specials on it or something. It's kind of a fascinating and horrifying story. In 1986, a nuclear power plant had a meltdown they were running a test that was not very well advised, and things got out of control, and a bunch of radiation released into the atmosphere, contaminating the city that was next to the power plant, 
and blowing some level of contamination all over the whole region. So hundreds of miles in, in all directions, there are evidences of extra radiation in people that shouldn't be there, but it's from that one disaster that happened a long time ago. It was kind of like this contamination, once it was released, there was no way to bottle it back. You just have to live with it. I think in a lot of ways, that's what happened when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. It was just they, once, once that was released, there was no way to walk it back and say, let's just pretend it didn't happen. There was no way to say, let's clean it up, because it's out there. It's now defining reality in a way that was never supposed to be. And the, the release of that radiation, the contamination starts when people do it's the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Instead of honoring God, they say, I think I'll make my own decision. I'm not going to acknowledge God. Instead, I want to do it my way. So in your book this week, if you want to look into this, read chapter 5. John Stott does a great job of painting the picture of what sin actually is. And he even goes through the Ten Commandments just to show example after example of how this plays out in daily life. That once the contamination of sin is in your heart, once that's a part of your nature, no matter what you do or how hard you try, it still defines you, which is really discouraging, especially if you're the kind of person who likes to fix things. Because you read the Bible and you think, man, the world's messed up, I want to fix it. And then the more you read, the more you study what God has said, the more you realize you have no power to fix what's wrong with the world, you don't even have the power to fix what's wrong with you. We're going to need power from somewhere else if that's going to happen. Okay, so let's walk through it. The negative transformation of humanity did not take long, sparked by one choice, a choice that sadly we all confirm each day when we walk off track from what God has told us to do, what was unnatural, evil, suddenly became normal. And what was natural, which was innocent holiness, became impossible. Once Adam and Eve gave that away, there was no way to go back to what they had. Now they did have the knowledge of good and evil. Now they did have choice that was informed by selfishness. And suddenly now we find ourselves in a situation where it is natural to do the wrong thing. In the Bible, we call that the flesh or the sin nature. That if you're just left to yourself, you trend away from God and away from God's moral standards. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but that's the story we're in right now. And there's no way to fix it. At least no way for us to fix it. So, let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and do our think-through of the scriptures for the day. Right after the text we just read, that sad summary of the human condition, people who are filled with evil and insolence and backstabbing and just in every way, even inventing ways to rebel against God. Like, that's the story they start with. That's the story we start with. Then we start reading in chapter 2, verse 1. You may think you can condemn such people but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others also do the same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things, 
Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid judgment when you're doing the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? Now, something helpful to know when you're reading the book of Romans is, is how this church would have been receiving this letter. So this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church that was meeting in Rome. Some of those people had a Jewish background, and some of them didn't. The ones that had a Jewish background would have had the law of Moses as something that informed their morality. And they probably were living according to at least some of the law of Moses, maintaining some sort of standard of holiness in their life. The rest of the world, the Bible calls Gentiles, all the people who grew up in other backgrounds, had no reference to the Ten Commandments or the Leviticus or the laws of Moses or the temple. Like Those people would have come out of really what we would call rough backgrounds. So you could imagine the church meeting where you have some people who have a lifetime of living by the law and other people from the rough backgrounds. You could imagine some of the dynamics. The people who live by the law would naturally think they were kind of in better shape than all the other people, right? I mean, after all, they're following Moses and they're, they're, they're pure in their actions. Maybe the people who didn't grow up with the law at all, maybe they're looking at themselves, kind of hanging their head, going, you know, I'm pretty far behind all these people that have been following God's rules for so long. You have both groups. They're in the same church. What Paul does as he's writing to this church is he shows why both groups need the salvation of Jesus. No one's really that much better than the next one. In fact, the people who think they're better might actually be in more trouble because they do know better and they still do the wrong things. At least the people who were ignorant were ignorant, right? But if you knew the truth your whole life and you still walked away from it, man, you're in more trouble for that. So, as we read Romans, it's kind of helpful to think about this interplay between these two groups going on. You've got some people who are crossing their arms in judgment, going, man, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as all those insolent haters out there, all, those, all the people we read about in Romans 1. And then in Romans 2, he says, well, hey, <laughs> you're in the same boat. Because what's broken inside of all those other people is still broken inside of you, no matter what you've prayed or said or how many laws you've tried to follow. So, verse 5. Because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hey man, this, this text is it's not very politically correct, right? Not very cheerful. It's just telling the truth. I do have a little bit of good news for you. We actually are not going to have to talk at all about verse 5 and the day of anger and the judgment to come today because we're going to talk about that next week. So, yeah, I'm just, now you're all like, man, I want to go next week. It's going to be fun. Oh, we'll, we'll tell the truth whether it's fun or not, right? So look at verse 6. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth. Instead, they live lives of wickedness. 
There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. And there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God will not show favoritism. So it actually doesn't matter what your lineage is or what church you grew up in or what race you are. God is not showing favoritism at all. When it comes to judgment and when it comes to sin and when it comes to righteousness, God is not looking at your culture, he's not looking at your social group, he's looking at you. And when he looks at you, what does he see? And this is our problem. No matter how much of a front we can put on that we're all good people, upstanding citizens, when we look in the mirror, we know the truth about our heart. That the same thing that Adam and Eve did wrong, we're doing wrong. And there are moments in our lives that we don't want to acknowledge God. There are moments when we would say, no, Lord, I'll make, I'll make the decision my way. Those moments, those moments of sin, are what have condemned us, what have chained us to the road of death. Jesus came to rescue us from all of that. But here's what we know. You, you don't really appreciate the prescription until you have an accurate diagnosis. And that's kind of what Romans 1, 2, and 3 help us to find, an accurate diagnosis. Before we can appreciate what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross to save us from our sins, we have to understand what our sins actually are and what they mean. So let's jump now to chapter 3, verse 10. Oh, well, there's more good stuff. We should read the next paragraph. Starting, let's start in verse 12 of chapter 2. When the Gentiles sin, they'll be destroyed, even if they've never heard or never had God's written law. And the Jews who do, not have God's, or who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, well, they show that his law, they show they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Even without having heard it, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or they tell them that they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So every secret that we think we're keeping, all of that will be exposed someday. So here's what I... I'm so amazed by, and also what is kind of a, maybe a nail in the coffin for all of us in our sense of self-righteousness, it's that even if you don't have any access to the law, according to what we just read, God's law is written on your heart, it's your conscience, and your conscience tells you when you're doing wrong or right. And even if you have no external reference point, you could still feel either guilt or joy over decisions you make because God has actually programmed that into you as a human being. You have a conscience. And so whether you've got the law of Moses accusing you of wrong or whether it's just your own conscience giving evidence of how wrong you are, everyone who's honest with themselves ends up with the same conclusion. I'm in trouble because my life falls short 
of the perfection and glory of God. No matter how many good things I've tried to do to erase the wrongs, it hasn't erased the wrongs. Those are still a part of me. And no matter how much I wish to reform my heart, it's still bent toward evil and it still thinks up terrible things. Evidence that we need a rescue, that we need a savior. Now, jump to chapter 3, verse 10. Paul goes back to the Psalms and quotes some scripture here to help us get the picture in case the memo hasn't come through real clear for you yet. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise, no one is seeking God, all have turned away, all have become useless, no one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. It's a far cry from the very good world that God made. When Adam and Eve were tasked with loving God with all their hearts and representing God and ruling over the earth as God's representatives in this place, and that's all out the window when you read here that no one is even close to on track. So what will we do? You turn to the law, say, hey, let's make a list of rules and see if that will help. Now, all the list of rules will do is show you how messed up you actually are. It won't solve anything. What does it mean to sin? As the Bible uses this word, there's two different aspects uh, to what the word means. One is to miss the mark. You might imagine an archer you know, firing an arrow and it just goes wide. It doesn't hit the target. And here we are as human beings with a purpose from God and we give it our effort and we miss sin. We fall short of God's glory. The other aspect of it that's a little bit more concrete is when you break God's law. So God says to do something, you don't do it. Or God, does, God says don't do something, you do do it. That's sin. It's walking away from what the Creator has told us we're to do. So in either sense, when we commit a sin, we're giving evidence that something's broken in our lives and we're going to need, to, we're going to need help with it. We're going to need to fix it somehow or else we go back and we face God's judgment instead of uh, his blessing. How do I know if I'm sinning? Well, there's two questions you could ask. And it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what culture you're from. It's, these two questions will always work. An attitude, a word spoken, a behavior, a frame of mind. How do I know if it's right or wrong, if it's a sin or not? First question you can ask, does this violate my conscience? Usually, almost always, if you're in the wrong, you already know you're in the wrong. You don't, need a, a, you don't need a law to tell you that you just did something that was bad. You, already your conscience is accusing you. So you say, does this violate my conscience? The other question, does this violate God's law? So when I open up God's word, I read in the Bible what God has said to do. When I read the commands of Jesus, how he applied those to life, well, am I in alignment with those or not? If I'm not, that's sin. Evidence that sin is lurking in your heart. I mean, it's one thing, and maybe as I, I guess I could speak from personal experience, because I'm a Christian and my whole life I've believed in the gospel, 
I don't have a lot of trouble admitting that I've sinned. Because I just recognize like how amazingly holy God is, how far short I've fallen of that. And so I, I don't have any, like it doesn't hurt my pride at all to say, you know what, I am a sinner. Some people haven't crossed that bridge. They're still, they're still working on step one, which is admit that you're not perfect, right? But the evidence that you might find in your heart, if sin is lurking there, you should not ignore if this evidence exists in your heart. Number one, far and away, would be guilt. That's your conscience telling you something's not right. Somehow the scales are out of balance. Secrecy. If you have to keep something a secret, to ask, well, why? What we're, what, remember in the Garden of Eden, in the story of Adam and Eve, right after they sinned, right after they ate the forbidden fruit, what was their first instinct? They hid. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, to hide from God himself, that's what they tried to do. We're going to hide in the bushes and hope God doesn't see us. Okay, um, as silly as that sounds, that's still what we're doing. If you feel like you have to keep secrets from God or from the people around you, especially people who represent what is good in your life, that's evidence that sin is lurking in your heart. Uh, pride, lies, you think lying in a, of itself is a sin, but usually when you lie, you're covering up a different sin. You get multi-layers of this brokenness going on in your heart. Fear, fear of being exposed, fear of someone knowing the real you, fear of somehow the facade dropping and someone seeing that you're not as perfect as you've been representing, or defensiveness, frustration. I think one that's really popular now is dismissiveness. So you realize something's wrong and you go, eh, doesn't matter. Everybody else is doing it. The world says it's okay. Who cares? Well, God does. And justice does. The Bible does. We're supposed to as Jesus' followers. So we can't dismiss sin. But there'll be a temptation to do that if it's lurking in your heart. Sin leads to all sorts of terrible things. Most of all, the judgment of God. Again, that's in the next chapter, we'll dive into that a little bit and how that looks, what that means. And here is why Jesus saving us from our sins is so critical. It's because we can't save ourselves. So the, the whole story, when you think about basic Christianity, Jesus is at the center of it. Why does he matter to you? There's lots of reasons, but a big one is that he is your only path to fixing what's broken in your heart. The only way you can be saved from your sins and saved really from yourself is by the path Jesus has laid out, by trusting in him. There's nothing that you or I could do to fix the problem that we've identified. Okay, so let me sum it up this way. Both our inner life and our environment have been contaminated by sin. So you can imagine, man, when sin entered the world, big radiation release, now it's everywhere. There's no way to get rid of it. There's no way for us to clean it up. Sin has altered us, it has thrown the world and us off course. Only a full reboot of life, or a new birth altogether, can help. Enter Jesus. Jesus who said, even to one of the holy teachers of Israel, you must be born again. It's not just about you getting your record cleared, it's not just about trying harder. You have to be born again, restarted, renewed, new creation, 
God has to do a miracle in your life, in your heart, for you to leave behind the life of sin and embrace the life that you were always supposed to live in fellowship with God. Now, this is just one piece in what Christianity adds up to and what it means and why it's important. But I think it's actually possible that some of us skip this piece because it's not fun, it's not comfortable. No one wants to look in the mirror and think about their faults. But when we recognize how deep our need is for a Savior, we'll actually lean toward the Savior. When we realize how desperate the diagnosis shows our health is, we'll be willing to take the prescription. So when we open up the Bible and it talks about pride, lust, greed, hate, selfishness, anger, and we look at all of that and we say, wow, that's kind of like me. That's all there on purpose. Not just to make you feel bad. It's to, it's to drive you toward Jesus. The more you see what sin is, the more you understand the perfection of God and how far short you fall of that perfection, the more ready your heart becomes to ask God for the solution. And thankfully, he's provided that in Jesus. We'll continue on next week, picking up from right here. For now, let's pray. Lord, you've given us so much grace and mercy and patience, knowing that from the very beginning, you didn't have to let us continue down the road of sin. You could have just ended humanity whenever you wanted to. You still could. But because of your love, you've offered us a path out of our sin and back to you. Thank you for that path. Thank you for not leaving us in the gutter of selfishness. Thank you for offering us a road forward in life. I pray for anyone here in the room right now that knows that sin is still gripping their heart, their mind, their way of life. They don't feel freedom. They don't feel potential. They just feel trapped. For that person who's waking up to the reality of what sin does in their life, in their heart, I pray that you would bring great light into their soul right now. I pray that rather than turning to themselves, for the answer that they would turn to you instead. Lord, all of us, even those of us who believe in Jesus or who have been Christians for a long time, still see the evidence of sin lurking in our hearts. And as much as we want to purge, the, purge ourselves of that, we want to be done with all that contamination, we realize it's still inside of us and it's still in the environment around us. And there are temptations every day and everywhere. Thank you that you did not just save us from the consequence of sin in the future, but you saved us from the power of sin in the present. That you are offering us a road out of that way of life and back to the very good life that you designed us to live. So we thank you and we commit this day, this moment, 
these words of Scripture, we commit all this to you. Lord, would you guide us to the next step? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you on your way. Remember to read chapter 5 this week. We'll see you back here next time.